Ladies and gentlemen, in the blue corner, standing at a sleek 5'11", 245 pounds, the tumultuous tempest of technique, Thomas Lilly. And in the red corner, at a curvaceous 5'11", 315 pounds, the jovial juggernaut of judgment, John Cheryl Sheridan. A meeting of the masters of mastication turn your attention as they delve deep into all things lifting and more. This is Peak Speak. We're back with another episode of Peak Speak, proudly brought to you by the fun folks at Manscaped. Sweaty sack summer is approaching and it's time for you to prioritize the comfort of your crutch. That's why the kings of crutch comfort, Manscaped, have spent two years designing the most comfortable boxer briefs out there. I've had the honor of testing out these new boxes and I can say it's the softest fabric of any underwear. So breathable, it's like gills for your groin. They even trademarked the jewel pouch, so you know it's serious. I think it's time to invest in your family jewels, so let your bulge breathe and get 20% off and free shipping by using the code PEAKSPEAK at manscaped.com. Let's say you're on a date and your partner catches that Manscaped on the waistband of your underwear. It is almost guaranteed to raise some eyebrows and act like a billboard on the highway to Pleasure Town. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code PEAKSPEAK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code PEAKSPEAK at manscaped.com. Once the boxes 2.0 touch your sack, you'll never go back. <laughs> Absolutely. Fantastic. And we are powered. We are invigorated we are caffeinated thank you to the folks at prism coffee coffee co go to the, the their website and use the code peakspeak for a sick discount because you'll never go back from their coffee either and maybe don't put it on your sack or do that's entirely up to you your call yeah mix exactly. of the two why not yeah. be our guest yeah. yeah live your life it's your choice speaking of guests we have uh, an amazing guest on today Yes. Um, so I had the pleasure of being solo host to uh, Dr. Andy Galpin, who is a university professor, researcher, uh, high-level performance coach from the US. Uh, and we sat down and had a really cool chat about a few different things. We touched on uh, some discussions around like the interference effect in uh, training. So, you know, cardio versus strength stuff and how that can maybe be of a benefit to you uh we talked a little bit about breath control and and its power in uh regulating performance and uh down regulation post training things like that and then had an interesting chat around ways that uh new or or emerging coaches can uh sort of bridge the gap between science research and performance application which i, I think is one of the things that i was most interested to talk to him about because hmm. that's really what he does having worked on really on both sides of the spectrum he's um he's worked with like high level athletes in all of the major sports in in the u.s does a lot of stuff with mma and ufc fighters and stuff like that as well so has a really wide range of experience in in the practical applications of the scientific research which is really cool and um yeah he's a really great dude and a, and a really cool chat to um to be a part of myself and i hope uh, everyone gets a little bit out of it 
Yeah, well, I'm very much looking forward to uh, listening to it, as I'm sure all the listeners are as well. I didn't get the opportunity to sit in on this one, unfortunately, but uh, I'm sure it was a great chat, and I hope you all enjoy. Yeah, and you can uh, check out more about uh, Dr. Andy Galpin. You can find him on Instagram. His handle is just Dr. Andy Galpin, G-A-L-P-I-N. Uh, his website's andygalpin.com. You can see a lot about what he does. He's got links to like all the publications and stuff that they've put out. And um, yeah, find out a little bit more about him. He's also, he and uh, Dan Garner are looking to come out to Australia, I think next year, they said, um, with their seminar called Biomolecular Blueprint, which is about uh, real science for world-class results, which would be pretty cool. Um, nice. And uh, yeah, that's that's about it from us. I hope you all enjoy the chat. Enjoy. See ya. Bye. So, uh, Dr. Andy Galpin, firstly, thank you for coming on to the podcast uh, and welcome. I appreciate you giving up your time and sitting down to have a chat with us today. Um, as I just mentioned off air, I suspect there's an element of our audience that maybe haven't heard of you before. Um, I've certainly been following your, should we say antics? Is antics the right word? Since the uh, barbell yeah, shrug. Super fair. Yeah, excellent. So uh, I've been following you since the, the Barbell Shrug days, and that was my first introduction to you. But can you give us a little bit about who you are and, and where you came from and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Just for the audience as well. Uh, we have a little bit of a lag. So I apologize if I speak over John and John speaks over me. Uh, just keep that in mind. I'll do our best. But um, yeah, I'm a full-time professor and scientist. That's my day job. So I, I am the director for the Center for Sport Performance. I'm also the founder and director for what's called the Biochemistry and Molecular Exercise Physiology Laboratory. So my job is to perform research on anything I think has the potential to enhance human performance and then to disseminate that knowledge to practitioners. Um, so I do that you know, as my full-time for real job, if you will. Um, within that, I teach mostly at the graduate level program design for strength and conditioning, sports high-performance nutrition, um, the class is kind of like that. On the side, I also work, I have worked with professional athletes in a number of areas uh, for many years. So I've worked with a lot of UFC fighters. I've worked with world championship boxers. I've worked with Olympic gold medalists, Olympic medalists in multiple sports. I've worked with some of the best powerlifters in the world. Uh, I've worked with um, Cy Young winners, NFL MVPs, all pros, Hall of Famers. I've worked with the number one player in the world in four of the major American sports. So, um, you know, a little bit of research and then a little bit of application, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at here is uh, I'm not the most prolific sports scientist in the world. And I'm certainly not the most prolific uh, coach in the world, um, but I've done a little bit of both. And so I can speak to both sides of the equation. A little bit and so that's effectively what i do yeah awesome and and from my point of view i think that was one of the most interesting aspects of, of having you on is to be able to bridge that gap and we'll, we'll probably touch on that a little bit later on uh in terms of how we can go about bridging that gap between science research and and the practical application because i think that's a really big area that still really is lacking in that connection between both sides of that spectrum, if you will. Um, so there's a few little things that we want to uh, want to touch on as we go through this. Um, the first one that I'd like to touch on, mostly out of a sense of uh, selfishness more than anything else, is uh, 
the discussion that I listened to you have with uh, Andrew Huberman on his podcast recently about the interference effect and the ups and downs of being able to train for, you know, cardiovascular fitness and strength and, and sort of concurrent training like that. Cause I know people of my era, at least I came up in the powerlifting era where, you know, cardio will kill your gains. And there was something to be said for pre-training cheeseburgers and those sort of things. And I look mm -hmm. back now at, at my own training and think that I, I probably left a lot of kilos on the platform competitively because I had this concept that any form of cardio was a terrible idea. And I think that, at least from my point of view, has been changing very, very much over the last few years. There's a lot more people doing both ends of the spectrum really well and I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts both from a coaching standpoint but also the the research side sure let me set the table a little bit here for you um i i, ha I have never worked with a power lifter at, at a high level in terms of the strength conditioning program everything we've always done is the physiology nutrition weight management weight cut side athlete preparation recovery that side of it so make sure i'm super clear there I don't train powerlifters in terms of designing a program, never have, especially not at this level. That being said, um, you know, I, I've been around that sport for a long time. I, I lived with for many years, you know, my dear friend, Chris Moore, you know, and he was a, he was a thousand pound squatter, seven bench, seven dead. So like he, all uh, natural. So like he was a pretty good, that's a decent powerlifter. Um, and I was just around that stuff a lot and being around Steffi Cohen and stuff. Um, I've been in those worlds a touch. Um, been fortunate to go up to Columbus and many, many times. So I've, I've been around it enough to go, Hey, look, um, when I first started, when I lived with Chris Moore, I, I was with you, man. I'm just like, and I can tell you stories about being in Chris's Jeep and driving around like the cliches are true, man. Like driving around Walmart for half an hour to trying to find a closer spot. Like all those like cliche stories. I've, I've been there. Right. I've been the like, we're going to wait 25 extra minutes to get a table slightly closer in the restaurant. Just like, what the hell are we doing here? Um, he regretted that at the end. Um, I, I don't know if you know the story, Chris, but he ended up passing away at 36 years old. He was, a big in, he was a big influence in, in my, my space. Like I, I got into Barbell Shrugged and Chris was definitely one of the guys that I identified deeply with because I competed equipped. I was chasing a thousand pound squat for a long time. So I spoke to him a couple of times over Instagram and yeah, watching him pass away like he did was definitely one of the big uh, sparks towards my transition in training away from that and towards more training for living a life that isn't just a disgusting mess of a really strong power lifter, which don't get me wrong, I had heaps of fucking fun doing it, but uh, of course. Yeah, it's, it's that reality check that is um, very, very sad to see him have to go through it like that, but uh, it's yep. you know, potentially a very powerful lesson for the rest of us. Yeah, man. And even before he passed, when he just got done, um, and you hear people talk about this all the time. I've dealt with the post, what we call post gold depression, which is like people win gold medals and, and what a pick your sport. And it's like, shit, it's not, they just think they assume this thing is going to be there when they win and it's not. And so they end up being like, Oh, okay. Like, and they, they start looking back and Chris's example, like he started hitting those numbers and it was like, Oh, man, like I really feel terrible. Like he just did not feel good being that unfit for that long. Um, AJ Roberts, same story. You know, I've known AJ for a long time. 
a lot of power lifters, even when they hit those world records, I mean, there's the, there's Chuck and there's the ones that just go on for, and Eddie, you know, and uh, Eddie's a beast, um, had a different career. Ed's a good friend of the podcast. He's, uh, yeah, he's yeah, been yeah. on our podcast before and a, a fantastic he, bloke. He's but the I don't think we can use him ever. as an, I don't think we can use him as an example. He's always no. the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, the, the vast majority are going to get the end and go, God, like I'm one of the major, I guess I'll say this one, one of the major reasons people quit is they just can't deal with feeling like that anymore because they're so unfit. Um, it's, it's a big contributing, it's a big factor, I'd say for some number of people. Certainly there's other reasons, but that's it. So all that to say, I've done a 180 on this one big time. Um, obviously you kind of alluded to it. I'm not going to go into the whole background story like I did on my talk with Andrew. You can go check that out if you want. But the basic point is the science has made this pretty clear, I think. Um, there's enough practical experience to say like there's some baseline level of aerobic fitness that one needs. Um, I think that got confused 20 years ago with saying you had to go run. And that, that is not at all the case. Um, it could be anything, but the way that I teach it in my classes and, and seminars is, hey man, like if you are out of gas tying your shoes, we're, we're not gonna have enough ability to train enough. Like we're, we're going to lose what we also know about with Brian McKenzie's work, um, the Healthy Performance Foundation's work, with all these things that connect to breath and oxygen delivery and CO2 and anxiety and focus and sleep and recovery, it's just become painfully clear. You have to have an efficient aerobic system. In the sport of powerlifting, especially when you're trying to hit the numbers that probably most of the people listening are trying to hit, at least relative to themselves. At the same time, you cannot waste energy just training cardio for nothing. There is no gas left in the tank, right? We have to save as much resource as we possibly can because you are literally trying to put a half a ton on your back or pull it up off the floor. Like we, we can't just go burning calories on an elliptical for no fucking reason. That doesn't fly either. So with the sport of powerlifting and weightlifting, it's the same, by the way. Um, we have to be extremely conservative and careful with any resources we deploy to something not maximal training. Right, not highly specific, especially when we get close. Right, very basic said principle: as we get closer to competition, we need to get more and more focused on specificity. And as we get further away, we can do more general. So there's a lot of ways you can solve this problem, but just to, for the people that have that initial gun shy reaction to think, "Oh, like you really guy thinks I should go running for 30 minutes when I'm three weeks away from a squat?" No, absolutely not. Like that is not even close to what we're saying, and don't construe it like anything like that. Um, we're simply saying like, if your VO2 max is 12 milliliters per kilogram per minute, you're, you're never going to reach your full potential. This is going to have problems or you might, but your career is going to be very short. And, and most people don't want that either. So there's got to be some sweet spot in between where we can land on. This is okay. And for a sport like powerlifting or weightlifting, that sweet spot is pretty far down the line in terms of not much aerobic training, not much endurance training at all. There's not a lot of room for it. Other sports, it's much further down the road, but there's still got to be a spot for it. So in terms of then practical application, uh, for someone, let's say, who is powerlifting at a reasonably high level and is pretty committed to that as a pursuit, is this something you would look at from like a, a cyclical approach? Like, hey, we're going to have a period of post-competition aerobic training. 
how would you then maybe go about incorporating it closer to competition maybe not in that three or four weeks out from a meet but in the middle of the you know the thick of it if you will of the training process what does that look like do you do you think in terms of practical application yeah well to start again this is all theoretical because i haven't done it with, with you too so i want to be real clear like that it's you're asking what would i do i'm going to tell you what have i done i have it. All right so here you go um number one yeah that sounds like a very reasonable approach put it in different phases of your training um, that sounds great. The other thing that comes to my mind is people think aerobic capacity and they all of a sudden just jump to the conclusion that it's long distance steady state. And that's certainly one form, but it is not the only thing, not even close. There are a lot of other ways to get moving on this uh, without touching steady state exercise at all. Um, there could be just different training modalities, like take it as far as circuit training. Take it as far as pushing a prowl. I mean, Louie did this stuff for forever, right? Pull yeah. dragon sleds and wheelbarrows. That might be enough, right? That might be sufficient. Um, there are very low threshold steady state things like walking that for most people don't do a lot. For most athletes, going to do very little. But for your population, there, there actually may be some benefit from just walking. I mean, look at how many times have you had to hear Stan Efforting talk about taking a 10-minute walk three times a day. Yeah. I mean, again, probably not super effective for most people, but hey, in this population, it's in terms of minimal effect, minimal interference, maybe you got something. And then you can go into the whole other realms. There are a lot of things you can do with breath work. Um, we've done a lot of things by just doing 20 minutes of breath training, and we've seen major increases in hemoglobin and hematocrit over the course of four or five weeks with just breath training. There are altitude simulation things you can do. There are high altitude, low altitude stuff that you can do. Again, that take they, take, they do take physical resources. You're going to start messing with O2, CO2 concentrations. Resources count, but you're not physically doing anything in terms of muscle, skeletal muscle. You're not, you're not moving at all. You're just laying there. Um, in some cases, you're just laying in an environmental chamber, like doing nothing. So as long as calories are sufficient, which tend to not be a problem in your population. <laughs> yeah. Um, then you can handle that, that load. So there's just a lot of other ways you can do it. My general approach, and the only reason I'm saying this is because I have a similar issue in some sense with um, fighters, just in the sake that when we get close to a UFC fight or a boxing fight, we, we can't afford to be doing just random junk training, right? And that was different because a lot of their training does carry over this stuff. But the same sense of like, we get really close to UFC fight or, you know, 12 Round boxing match for world championship. Like we, we cannot mess around. Um, so those individuals, uh, th th this breathwork stuff can be super effective. It's not particularly hard. Um, the do simulation stuff again can also work. Uh, there's just a lot of ways to go about it. And, and we haven't even gotten, we haven't even gotten to the easy stuff. Well, complicated, but super easy in terms of if you just really can get a beat on your physiology, there's a lot of ways you can improve oxygen transportation by just getting, making sure your blood work is dialed and making sure that gut and everything else physiologically is in the right spot. Micronutrients are, are dialed in there. Sleep, sleep is just so like, there's a whole reaction that happens. People don't realize uh, if you get a bad night of sleep or you sleep apnea, which is extremely prevalent in the powerlifting community because of mostly the physical size, um, you can get all kinds of splenic contractions overnight. So what that means is your iron levels just shoot through the roof. And if you've ever gotten a, a powerlifter and you've got blood work done, your iron is just out of control. It may be because you're just eating way too much meat. 
But that's a lot of the times that's a false flag. A lot of the times this is a, a dead ringer that you're having sleep apnea and may or may not realize it. And so what's happening is you're basically going hypoxic at night. And so oxygen is getting super low and your spleen is responding by dumping a bunch of red blood cells in the blood over time. Right. And you're thinking, oh, my God, I'm eating too much meat or whatever. And it's really your body's way of screaming for oxygen transportation. So just getting that corrected and dialed in can play a massive role in your recovery and your sleep. And of course, training adaptations. But that right there can solve huge oxygen transportation problems. Um, and, and you didn't even have to do anything extra. So that, like when you say that, my, my mind goes in 100 directions of ways I've corrected this. Um, it's not just going for a 30 minute run two days a week. Like that's, that's the, for a power lifter, that is the last option I would go to like absolute last, even getting on a bike for 30 minutes would be the, the way down my list. My, if I'm being real honest, number one is I'm going after sleep and making sure we're not seeing some screwery there. And then I'm going to go labs and see what's happening. Physiology. Then from there, we may start making training adaptations or training changes to the program, but I don't want to because we need those resources to go deadlift 600 pounds or whatever you're going to do. So I'm going to try to figure out the ways around it with other athletes. I might go training programs first because their sports aren't, you know, like baseball players, like, well, just train because you don't do anything else. Anyway, all day is just sit around, hit a baseball once every half an hour at most, like, right. It's a totally different thing. So a few folks like that's where I'd go get physiology dialed and get nutrition dialed in. Supplementation can be a huge win. If you know what you're doing, it can be a terror. If you don't, it can put you in the wrong direction super fast. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I could keep going, but you get the idea. Uh, so, yeah, w what I was saying is, I think from my point of view, and I, and I know Thomas feels similarly, that we um, we both sort of got into powerlifting in the late 2000s. Like I did my first comp in 2010. And to see the transition in the sport since then away from um, without wanting to see it as a negative but I think a lot of people saw the the guys like the west side guys and these big really strong dudes and, and kind of committed to this idea of being really big and strong and wearing that as an identity which I know I did and I certainly fell into that I'm sure Chris did as well like I, I certainly mm -hmm. see a lot of parallels in that and then to now see this shift in the whole discussion around around powerlifting where people are much more committed to the idea of training for longevity and being able to do this for a really long time by being able to actually have a base of cardio fitness. And I think a lot of people have potentially missed a lot of really low hanging fruit in that uh, because they've had this idea that this is how the identity works or you can't possibly do it any other way or anything like that. So I think it's really interesting to see that. And I think, like you said, there's a lot of really easy ways to, to just make really big improvements in that, which is cool um to then move closer to the breath control thing which i found really interesting and so i've obviously as i said before i've been exposed to your work for a while now uh i've also been exposed to brian mckenzie's stuff for a while i did their yeah. art of breath course when um rob came out to australia many years ago now and was constantly fascinated by that breath control and the power of breathing in that and uh i'd like to to talk about because i know you mentioned in the human episode again that idea that like all of the athletes that you train or coach in in all aspects have some form of breathing protocol or something like that that is is about their ability to down regulate post 
round in a fight or post training or things like that and i think that's again something that i know i missed very early in my powerlifting career i was the guy with fucking headphones in at a meet slam pedal and caffeine from the jump and then just being absolutely exhausted by the time we got to deadlift so i think now as a more mature person who understands more i'm way more in tune with the ability to sort of ramp up and ramp down again so i'd be interested to hear your thoughts in uh, in what that looks like in a practical application, but also the the power of just being able to be in tune with your breath and what it means and how we can use it to influence our physiology. Big question. Where do you want me to start? It's up to you, man. You take that where you want to go. I'm happy for you to, to lead in this respect. Yeah, man. There's just a lot I have to say on that, of course. The scenario yeah, for, sure. for very, very long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe maybe touch on the the sort of the basic of it of like what can we do, and then maybe a, a quick look at what the practical application might be. Yeah, I think the way to think about this is we've done people a bit of a disservice in continuing to teach physiology as if there are systems. There are skeletal muscle or skeletal system, muscular system, nervous system, etc. That helps you when you're trying to learn because it's giving you systems of categories to memorize. When we talk about actual human performance though, it actually takes you in the wrong direction because it gives you this concept that you can isolate. And you can in terms of like surgery, but in terms of training and eating, it's not how it works. And the reason I say all this is because this disassociation between psychology and physiology um, has led a lot of people to do very silly things with their brain. Um, thinking it has no influence on their physiology or vice versa. This is so. This is a bi-directional relationship. Um, psychological strain can cause physiological responses. Everybody knows that. Uh, a car flies through your window right now. Within milliseconds, your stomach will feel different. Your heart rate will elevate. You'll have all of these responses, and you didn't do anything physically. Not a muscle contracted. It's just a psychological threat. People realize that. What they don't realize is the other direction. What you do physically can have the same exact ability to manipulate what you're doing psychologically. And one of these go-between and the signal molecules that crosses between psychology and physiology is carbon dioxide. And so CO2 is a byproduct of metabolism. So what happens very quickly is you take an inhaled breath and you inhale mostly oxygen. We'll just think about it as O2, oxygen for now. You run metabolism, whether you're breaking down carbon from carbohydrates or from fat, either way, you're splitting a carbon atom. And what happens is that releases energy. You use that energy to then go make a molecule called ATP. ATP is then used to make actual cellular energy across all biology. doesn't matter. It's the only possible energy currency in all biology. Well, as a result of that, you've got this free floating carbon that's just sitting there. And the quick way to think about this is free carbon in your system is highly acidic. Okay, it's not exactly how it works, but it's getting the concept here. All right, so your body's not gonna let carbon just float around there. And so what it's going to do is say, hey, um, if we can attach that carbon to an oxygen and form CO2, then we have a quick way to diffuse that, get that through out of muscle in the blood and get it back through the lungs and get it out of the body. And that's great. So we breathe in O2 for the single purpose really of combining a carbon to that molecule to generate CO2 to be able to exhale. So the only reason you you actually breathe O2, the only reason you breathe period is not because you need fuel. There is Oxygen is not a fuel for anything. 
It is simply a transport vehicle to get carbon out of your system. That's all we're after, right? So what happens is this, when oxygen levels get very low, you don't feel much different. But when CO2 levels get very high, you feel very different. That's the internal signal to respirate. It's the internal signal to panic. It's the same exact signal. So if CO2 levels get very high, like during the exercise, ventilation gets high. <sighs> you're hyperventilating, right? You're, you're over breathing. That's because you're trying to dump CO2. That's because you don't want to become acidic because that blocks metabolism. At the same time, it's also your brain, it's the exact same signal, by the way, is saying, hey, breathe more, breathe more, breathe more. You interpret that as panic and stress because your brain needs to interpret that as do something about this now because it's stopping physiology. And so this mental cue you have learned is just a way to make sure you do something physically to allow your physiology to continue. And so you can learn to override that signal very easy. You can learn to be very resilient to CO2 levels. You can learn to be very, or very sensitive to CO2. Um, so that being said, if you are stressed psychologically and you're already walking around very close to your CO2 threshold, a small physical insult, training session, workout, whatever, or a small mental stress, either one can kick you right past that CO2 sensitivity threshold. And now all of a sudden you're over breathing, you're hyperventilating and or you're extremely reactive psychologically. You're an asshole. Um, you make quick decisions. You can't sleep, can't sleep at night, right? CO2 levels are very, very high. All of these things wake back up. So stress is stress, right? Well, there are many molecules that are involved in the stress response, but carbon dioxide is at the top of that list. So we need to be able to regulate carbon dioxide. Now, by the way, stress response is not bad. Stress response is what you need to train. It's what you need to cause adaptation. It's what you need to get very focused and be alert. And um, all, all that stuff that has to happen. So, so this is a hugely beneficial thing, but run unchecked. All of a sudden we're running really, we're walking around constantly at that CO2 threshold. And this is, you know, no one's ever mistaken a power lifter as someone who's calm and nice, right? Like this just doesn't happen, right? They tend to be dark vocal poles. Like that's, that's the avatar we think of when we think of, um, you know, elite power lifters for a bunch of other reasons. So that being said, then if we can become either more tolerant to higher CO2 levels and learn mentally to so, oh, okay, when that thing happens, I need to not respond mentally or physically. That's great. So be more tolerant to the CO2 level or to not generate as much CO2 on a given workload. And that goes right back to our beginning of your conversation. The more aerobically fit you are, the less of an issue we have with generating excessive CO2. The higher ability we have to, to dump that CO2, get it out of the system, and remain calm and cool, right? And so for people who are in sports where they have to make decisions, this becomes extremely important because this is what executive function goes down the, down the drain, right? Um, now for power lifters, it's like, there's not a lot of decision-making. <laughs> it's like walking the rack, put it on, get up or don't. So like panic response is good there, right? Awesome. But in training, what you want to have happen is um, the old thing where it's sort of like you pull up to the parking lot and you're zoned out, you're chill, right? 
But the second you walk out of that door or the second you cross that gym floor or the second you walk out of the locker room or the second you get in your car, whatever that line is for you and the switch is on, we want that to be a very clear line, right? In fact, we actually physically use this as a tool sometimes. Um, I have put tape down on the floor in the gym, even just like within the gym and said, hey, you stay the fuck behind this line. Do not walk past this line until you're ready to win a world championship. I don't care if it takes you 10 seconds, 10 minutes, 10 hours. Don't walk past this line, right? And it's like, oh, and they see that line. And they know it's not like, oh, hey, guys, duh, like, uh, like, it's like, no, there is no games being played past this line. You can't always do that, right? This is, you can only pull out that card every so often or else you're going to burn. But it's a very clear line. It's like if people walk in the gym, they're like, oh, the line's down today. The whole tune is different. There is just like, we're going to have fun and play games and be lighthearted and all that. But today is not that day. This is when we have to go whatever we're doing, right? So that only works, though, if you can then cross that line backwards and go equally back down. That has to happen. So I want you playing whatever music you want. I want you happy and hell. And then you get in the locker room, you're changing, you're joking around, and everyone goes, oh, but great. And, and your CO2 levels are chill. And then you walk past that line, and it's like, it's on. And you walk back out, and you go right back to that previous person. So having that ability is incredibly important for athletes because you just won't have a very long career if you can't do that. Um, it's just, there's too much pressure in the sports I work with. There's too much pressure when you're the number one player in Major League Baseball. It's too much pressure when you're the MVP um, in the NBA. Like, it's just too much. You have to be able to go, game is over. I'm back down here. Let's think rationally. Let's make good decisions. Let's do all that stuff. But you can't just be that fire person 24-7 um, without coming back down. So the vast majority of the athletes I work with, uh, we will strongly encourage them to have some sort of post-exercise down-regulation routine because a lot of the times they're going into another training session very quickly afterwards. This is where the athletes I work with are different than powerlifters. So if you're a baseball player, you're going to work out, and then you're going to have a game to play. Or you've played a game, then you're going to work out, and you're going to have to go home now. And it's like, okay, I played a three-hour baseball game, then I lifted, and now you want me to go home and go to sleep? Like, <laughs> and, I get, and I'm in the wrong time zone, by the way. And you're like, Okay. And then I also like, I'm over my last 28 bats, like no, no chance. Right. Like I'm getting booed, whatever the thing is a basketball game. You just got toasted on the I can give you examples, examples with fighters. I got another training session in two and a half hours. Um, okay, great. So you have to be able to, um, walk that line with powerlifters is a little bit different. Cause like you finish and you're not going to train again that day. Like almost never. Right. And even the next day, probably off or to a minimum. But you really want to be able to come in and as quickly as you can post-training, bring that all the way back down. Get that CO2 out, get oxygen back in very high, and bring stress levels way down. Yeah, and I, I think the most actually applicable part of that concept is in the competition aspect of powerlifting rather than the training aspect. Like, yeah, it's really good to be able to downregulate post-training, get to sleep, all of those sort of things. You know, maybe your 5.30 p.m. monster that you slam pre-training isn't the best option for recovery post-training, those sort of things. 
but probably not. You know, pow- but but powerlifting because it's often a very long day. If you've got a four flight meet with you know 45, 50 people in it, yep. it's going to be a long day. And certainly in my experience, the the best lifters are the ones that can get up for squats and then come back down and then start warming up for bench, get up for bench, come back down again, relax, mm-hmm. eat, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. those sort of things. And so I think. From my point of view, that's where that becomes really, really powerful is in your ability to come up and come down repeatedly across a long day rather than burn all your energy at the start of the day and then yeah. have nothing left. That's a good point. I never, I never really thought about that. But yeah, I mean, when you, it's funny because a powerlifting meet is nine repetitions, but it takes yeah. nine hours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So yeah, like your ability to like come back down, we're going to have an hour. And depending on yeah. if you're good, like you, you might be taking all three of your attempts back to back to back that's what happens yeah. with weightlifting too right it's like yeah well, really really good ones tends to yeah. lift by themselves yeah <laughs> what like watching lasher start his warm-ups in yeah. the warm-up room while the rest of the lifters are doing their third attempts is always a pretty insane thing um, yeah for sure and then being able to bring it back down for 45 minutes and then get it right back up and not waste all that energy in between for sure yeah, uh, I think that's where the real skill, and certainly in in my exposure to high level athletes, that's where their their differentiation has been in powerlifting is their ability to come up and come down really quickly, almost like a switch. You know, the step off the platform, it's done. They can pull it back down, refocus for the next one, and go forward like that. Totally. Um, so the last thing I want to touch on, uh, because I'm very conscious of the time that you've given us already, uh, is the thing that I think. I was most interested in talking to you about, which is this idea of bridging the gap between research and performance application and practical application. And I think your experience is probably reasonably unique in the scheme of things in that you've worked on both sides of that spectrum, as you said. Uh, And so I know we have a lot of like new or aspiring coaches that listen to us. And I think just some maybe guidance on how those sort of people can uh, look at the science side of things without getting too caught up in completely changing their beliefs based on that one paper they read or cherry picking every piece of evidence that they can find to support their beliefs. Like what does that look like practically in bridging that gap between those two? I have a, a lot to say on this. Yes, I'm Maybe sure. More than, than anything else. Um, a couple of resources before I forget. On my YouTube, I have like an hour long talk that I call... Um, bulletproof bullshit detector in that it's based this is basically that talk and yeah, so i cool. kind of walk through how to interpret research and other stuff and kind of all these things so a lot of tools in there um two there are a lot of really cool companies that are putting out information like this and they're paid but they're, they're cheap relatively um everything from you know eric helms has his uh I think they call it Mass. M-A-S-S. Yeah, yeah Mass. Yeah, Mass is great. I've been a subscriber to them for a long time. Uh, Alan Aragon has been doing this for 15 years with his Alan Aragon research reviews. I think that's what it's called. Um, I know Lane and Holly just came out with their reps um, research and practical strategies or something like that thing. Um, I think Ben House maybe has something like this him and tommy would have would have something like this uh so those are um, apologies if i'm forgetting other ones like those are the ones that top my head um and i have bought and paid for all those uh that's what i do so like those, those things are really really good um so that, that that's honestly that's where i would start uh as a as a place to kind of keep your finger on the pulse each one of those groups have their own biases towards different sports of course 
you know, Eric and Greg and, um, and Mike and those guys tend to be more interested in powerlifting and stuff. Uh, Lane is low powerlifting, but he has also like speaks a lot on just general public health and nutrition stuff. Um, so he's a little bit slanted uh, towards that stuff. So it's actually probably, and Alan's typically very nutrition focused. So it, it's good to maybe do all of them. I, shit, I don't know, hundred bucks a month to subscribe to all those things probably, like probably less. That's a, that's a pretty good deal considering you probably down much more than that on worse items. We'll just say. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. So there's a couple that are off the top of my head. I'm, I'm forgetting, I apologize, but nonetheless. Um, and the ones I would say is if you're a member of the National Strength and Conditioning Association, the NSCA has two separate research journals. Uh, well, first of all, they have a NSCA TV is great. So that's a bunch of videos and stuff behind that platform. You only get as a member, I believe. I think it's actually free with your membership or close. Um, and it's just a bunch of things like this. It's people like me. I've done it. Mike Ormsby's done a bunch of these. Mike is a fantastic scientist. We basically said, hey, this month, here are four or five articles that just came out that I think you should really pay attention to. And he gives the whole video is like three minutes. He just gives very quick breakdowns. And you can kind of go, ah, no, I'm not interested in that. I'm not, oh, shit, that one's really cool. And he can kind of like, quickly get you through what to pay attention to this month. Um, so that's, again, it's like in SCA, it's, it's, I think it's under three minutes. I did five or six of them and they were literally under three minutes. Um, the NSCA's journal, so the two journals, the first one is called the Strength and Conditioning Journal and that is for practitioners, very specifically. So it is practitioners, but it is not opinion pieces. It's not, right? It is strictly research-based breakdowns, but not for scientists. It's not original data. It's not methods. It's not um, this is what we did in this study. It is, hey, here's a bunch of studies that have been done in auto regulation. Here's a bunch of stuff on velocity-based training. Here's how we used it with our high school players. Here's how we used it with, you know, our Division One football players. Um, here's what it says, all this stuff. So it's a fantastic place um, to, to get through that stuff. If you want the actual research, then you can get the, the Journal of Strength Editioning Research. Um, so if you want to go pop your stuff in there, but if you just get subscription to those places, get on an NSCA TV and pop through the Strength Fishing Journal, that's going to put you in a tremendous spot. Um, the other thing I think is really interesting to do is you can, at least in the States, you can use uh, PubMed.gov. I'm not sure what the website is, maybe um, an Oz, but um, what you can do is you can just sign up basically um, on their listserv feed and then you can select topics. So you could basically say like, powerlifting and it'll just send you a an email every sunday night or monday or tuesday whatever day you want of just any articles that have been published in the last week on that topic and so you can just quickly look at it and go oh no not none of these things or if this one grabbed my attention pop into it read it more whatever and so that's that's really helpful even if you don't read any articles just to kind of keep your pulse on what's going on you just start noticing man there's a lot of papers coming out on bbt or geez, there's a lot of stuff coming up on stretching. People are really, like, I really got to pay more attention to breath work and strength training, whatever the case is. And so you just get a broader sense of what's globally happening without actually having to go in and read the independent methods section. So those would be my, my initial tips. Yeah, cool. And I think they're all really fantastic resources for, especially because, you know, the, the barrier to entry in coaching in like general fitness, strength training, those sort of things is still very low essentially across the globe. And so I think there are a lot of people who come to this without 
the university level experience of understanding research and doing all those sort of things. And it can be really intimidating to look at a lot of this stuff without some of that, you know, filter process being being built into it from the start, because uh, there's yeah. a lot of information out there. And I think it's really easy to fall into the trap of feeling like everything you're doing is wrong because you can't find a paper to justify every aspect or every decision you've ever made, you know? Yeah, man, like, I guess I'll add some more context to that. Um, a couple of things to keep in mind. Number one, nobody has it all figured out. That's, I mean, there are topics that come up all the time that I'm just, I was totally oblivious to. Totally oblivious. Uh, sometimes I hear this from a random wackadoodle coach from a professional athlete. They got their guy, whatever. And I'm just like, the guy had, you know, was in the military with him or just like all this stuff. And But sometimes he brings stuff up and I'm like, oh, I haven't heard of that. Or like, oh, gee. So I don't, you can't keep it all. So don't try and don't punish yourself if you don't. Number two, um, everybody has, everybody has imposter syndrome and it never goes away. Right. So you're going to feel like that the whole, your whole career. I mean, there are days when I wake up and I'm just like, man, I don't know anything. And it's like, uh, and then you kind of talk yourself off the ledge. You're like, wait a minute here. Like, I've, you know, stuff works. I've shown this model, but whatever. Um, so don't feel bad if you feel imposter, especially this stage of your career. No one expects you to be world champion yet. You know, you're not there yet. It's fine. All you have to do is provide good value to the people that you're working with. And that's all that, that's all you can do. Um, third thing. Uh, everything should be approached with humility in terms of science. So science is not an end. Science is a process. Science is a verb. It's not a noun. So it's a thing. It's an action. It's not a thing. Um, so as long as you are actively doing your best to practice under the evidence-based scope, then that's all you can do. Uh, you're you're going to miss a ton. And you're going to miss a ton because you didn't pay attention to the research. You're going to miss a ton because the research ended up being wrong. So either way, who cares? You missed. Like, it doesn't matter, right? Like, it doesn't matter if you're being lazy or incompetent or you just like, or you're, you were paying attention, the research was right, and it just didn't work for that individual person or a thousand other reasons. So as long as you approach it with humility and you we work with your clients with that. Um, so I, like, I try my best and you, you need to have confidence with coaching, especially some clients you need to be very confident with, right? Because some of them are, well, mentally fragile and like they are their, their, their confidence is constantly breaking and so you kind of have to sometimes just be like nope this is going to work 100 percent and then they leave the room and you're like oh shit like hope it works i don't know <laughs> and sometimes they get mad but we're like well geez if you do the opposite it's just going to break them so you can't do that but for the most part I, I generally try to tell people as often as i can hey like i don't know if this is going to work but i've done this a lot before and there's a lot of science like I, i'm really confident here um I never guarantee results though, because people, you know, people are unique. Physiology is different. I have all the answers. So, uh, if that's going to cause you anxiety, you probably should just leave the field. Yeah. Because you're never, you're never going to get past that ever. You're always going to miss research. It's always going to change. All you have, all you can ever do is just try to do your best. Um, the way that my friend Kenny Kane says it is, um, like, we're not the best, but we're going to try to do our best. And that's, that's all you can ever say is just like, I don't know if I'm the best, but I, I just know I'm going to try my best. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's a really important lesson for a, a new or aspiring coach is that the, 
no one ever comes into this with a like a negative connotation. They're not trying to do bad things or anything like that. Everyone's trying to come from a place of positivity and they're trying to do their best with what they have. And I think it's really easy, in, especially in the social media world, to, to lose touch with that and to feel like, you know, that person's an idiot because they don't understand the research that maybe you understand or something like that. And it's really easy to just get trapped into that spiral of trying too hard to be the best because you've got all the knowledge without actually being able to provide a good product for the people that you're working with. 100%. Yeah, awesome. So um, to finish up very quickly, we've got four questions that we like to ask all our guests. The first one is your favorite, either lifting and or coaching memory, generally with people who have coached and have competed and or done athletic pursuits themselves, we like one of each. Like what's your favorite coaching memory? What's your favorite training and or competitive memory yourself? It's a hard one. Um, favorite... I, imagine, I imagine in your scenario it is. I imagine there's a lot of really cool things to remember. Man, like in terms of coaching, um, I probably, my, my instincts sort of go there. I did, I did a lot of cool shit. I won a national championship in college football. That was awesome. I had a lot of other successes, but that none of those were even in the same stratosphere as some of the athletes um, in terms of perfect place. So like, you know, watching Helen Rulis win an Olympic gold medal, um, being the first American female ever to win a gold medal in wrestling. Uh, I mean, that still brings tears to my eyes. That was yeah, just a special, know. special. Um, and I wasn't even super involved like as a, relative to some of the other athletes I've been involved with um, certainly was a part of that, but um, that was super special. Um, watching Trevor Bauer when the Cy Young was, was incredible just because of how much of a monster he is and, and how nobody works harder. No one's more of a pro um, than that dude. So, and he just gets so much hate for absolutely ludicrous reasons. Um, and he just, he just got that got through it all. And, and, you know, he's just dominated. So that was, that was a very special one. Um, um, you know, you know, watching, um, you know, a handful of fighters get to world title fights. Uh, it's just so many other like, yeah, fights and competitions that have just been brutally fun to watch. Um, there's been a ton of heartbreaks where people got so close <laughs> and it didn't, didn't turn out. Um, and you're just like, Boy, those ones hurt, but those ones are also pretty fun too. Um, so those are some of the ones that are jumping to the top of my mind. Of, uh, I mean, I can tell you a big one that's coming. I mean, I just like, I cannot wait for the day Tatiana Suarez gets to get back in the UFC octagon. It's been three plus years with her, just an absolute disaster. Um, there's no chance I'll make it to that fight with dry eyes one way. Like, well, I, I probably won't make it to the cage. Uh, before I just lose my shit on that one. So um, that's been a fun process. So I, I cannot wait for her to get back. And she's getting close. Yeah, so. awesome. Yeah, look, as a coach myself, I I certainly have much deeper emotions related to my coaching experience and watching my athletes do well than I ever did my own experience. Because, you know, the same thing, I've done some fun stuff competing, but it's never touched the emotional power that is watching someone else right. that you've helped get there and really tick that box. So that's really cool. Um, so the next one is if you could sit down with uh, anyone, the, the caveat is we have to, they have to be alive, uh, cause anyone, if you go down there, they can be dead road. Sure. Who's, who's the one person you'd sit down for a meal with and, uh, shoot the shit. I feel like Henry Rollins would be high on that list. 
Yeah, fuck yeah. I don't have any connection at all to his music. I, I don't. Um, I'm not not a fan really at all. Yeah. Uh, but my God, that guy is. Uh, man, he's. I just love the way his mind works, and he's obviously, you know, by the way you reacted, you know, his relationship with strength training too. So. Man, I yeah, we so my girlfriend and I saw his spoken word to her when he was last in Australia, and it was fucking phenomenal. Um, so yeah, I went really, to, really I went cool. to that with Chris. Chris Moore yeah, dragged me to that 2000 four five or six or something like that yeah, yeah i was like i don't know man like i'm not a super punk rock kind of guy and i was just fucking mesmerized yeah mesmerized man, the man has He's a power a with unique, words unique unique human yeah awesome um then uh what's something that you used to believe that you know say it's in the last 12 months maybe the last two years that you drew a line in the sand that you have since changed your belief on, which I think is a very interesting question for someone who dabbles, not dabbles, but lives in the science world where the whole thing is about constantly trying to change your views on things by proving <laughs> things wrong. Um, I'm yeah interested to hear your thoughts on that one. Yeah, we've already discussed one of them, of course, the conditioning piece. Um, I'm just on a total 180 on that one. There's a lot of things. Um, other ones that are i think more interesting uh, i mean there's a lot of stuff supplementation wise uh, i used to be pretty firm against basically any supplements and now it's 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 pretty clear like uh, physiology responds to high concentrations of micronutrients vitamins minerals um it, it can do a lot on uh gut microbiome i've totally changed my i thought it was all woo woo crystal shit <laughs> Obviously, I missed that one just like massively. It's yeah. it's a whole thing, and it's very real. Um, so that's yeah, that's another one of uh, the breath work for sure. Thought it was woo woo horseshit, and even when Brian first brought it to me years ago, it's like, bro, come on, yoga like meditation, get out. I just missed that one entirely. So yeah, yeah, those are I a bunch of changed. I don't think you're alone in the, the, especially the breath work and the gut microbiome one, that, that woo woo hippie crystal bullshit, you, you sort of was the dominant narrative for a little while. And now there's a whole bunch of people who are the antithesis of woo woo hippie bullshit who are spreading the, the good word of all of that stuff. So it's really interesting. Yeah, man. I feel like, I feel like yogis ruined me on breath work and like paleo functional medicine people ruined me on gut microbiome. I'm just like, cause they abuse it so much on both yeah. sides. Right yeah yeah so many it, so many exaggerated claims on limited evidence and their claims were so fact-based and this is so there's so tight certainty and one mm. of the things you'll see in my bullshit video is um, i don't mind claims at all as long as the, the level of the claim matches the level of the evidence so if you're like hey there's no evidence here i don't know if this is true but i'm telling you like i'm really into this i'm fully fine and if you're like hey you want to buy my course on healing crystals i don't know if any of it works i'm pretty sure like i've, I've seen it but like oh, i don't care at all and then people know what they're buying i i just re get really mad when it's like oh buy my healing crystals course and then look no it's, it's super scientifically 100 they're trying to cover this stuff up and hide it then it's like okay you're straight up lying yeah you're, you're quackery um so as long as the level of evidence matches the level of conviction then i'm fucking totally fine say whatever you want <laughs> yeah cool totally cool i like that um so then the last one, uh, which is the one I always sort of enjoy the most, is what do you feel like one piece of advice 
that you could give to someone who's relatively new to training, strength training, things like that? What's that? What's the best piece of beginner advice you can offer in that scenario? Yeah, I got a bunch here. Number one, um, we've spoke about it a little bit, but I'll say Google Dunning Kruger. Right. Um, that's that's just a, a classic one. So another like a nicer way to say that is just don't be so certain. Yeah. Again, be confident and be um, decisive when it comes to your clients. You need to make decisions and you need to move forward. That's absolutely fine. Um, but you don't know it all. I don't know it all because nobody knows it all. So that level of humility needs to be there. Um, the other one I'll say is not really a question, but it's a similar question I get all the time. It's kind of like, man, how do, how do you get these kind of people? How do you work with uh, these Trevor Bowers? How do you work with Jojo Diaz Jr.? Like, how do you work with these just world-level people? Um, I came from nothing. I, I, I'm not from the big city. I'm not from family. I don't know anybody famous my whole life. I don't know anybody who knew anybody famous. I didn't have any idea what a PhD was. Um, even in college, nothing. So I didn't like, oh yeah, like I met Manny Pacquiao at my gym. Like I, had, I came from nowhere. There's nobody around, anything. The way I got here is simple. Number one, you need to have two skill sets to work with world champ, world caliber people. Skill set number one is you need to have a world-class skill. If your skill isn't as good as their skill, yeah, I, th I there's no point here, right? They wouldn't hire you just like you wouldn't hire them, right? So yeah. if you want to work with somebody who's a like high school level, have high school level talent, hopefully more, but you want to work with division one, have you want to work with Eddie Cohen, you better be as good at your job, whatever your job is, as he is at powerlifting. Like that, that's what it takes. Don't forget that part. Everyone always jumps to like, well, how do I get network and marketing? Like, well, for time the fuck out, you're going to be really good at something. So your, your first priority before you build your mailing list, before you capture lead gen, before you build an online presence, like you've got to get really good at something. I don't care what that thing is, but really good. Number two, you have to get opportunity. And the way you get opportunity is very, very, very simple. You have to deliver results consistently you have to over deliver right so when they pay you for a give them a plus b plus c and you have to just be brutally nice to every single person in your life because you you never know who happens to be ed cohen's little brother you, you never know who ends up being chad wesley smith's accountant like you just you, you have no idea right and so if you treat everybody like they're that person you're hoping to get treat everybody like they are that dream client and you just never know you never know you know sue and i, I could tell you a hundred stories of me personally where that happened i could tell you some friends and colleagues i i could tell you so many who got their break like when you're just like how and you're like well like I, I did this for a guy and he ended up being a gardener of this dude and then he like told me you're just like what yeah well that that's how it works um so networking is all that and networking is not just like looking to follow somebody on Instagram, oh, they're popular, yeah. let me get them. Like, it is everybody. Yeah. Um, it is it is the person working at the Jamba Juice. It's just everybody. So that's my advice. Awesome. 
that pretty much covers everything I wanted to talk about today. I really genuinely appreciate your time and uh, your insight. I will um, we'll probably add all of your social media links and stuff like that in a little intro we'll do at the start because people never get to the end and actually go and look at your Instagram bio when you talk about it at the end like that. But from the bottom of my heart, I genuinely appreciate your time and, and thank you very much for having us, uh, for being on the show with us. And um, yeah, that's about it. All right, my pleasure, man.